0: Um, There are words that, over time, change meaning. Um, Especially if you start thinking about Bible, there are some words and phrases in the King James that people, for that reason, they may switch versions of the Bible because that language was so prevalent and common so many hundreds of years ago, the King James language. And without a doubt, there are words that have changed meaning over time. there are th- phrases in the Bible that they sat at meat together. And that doesn't mean that they maybe even had any meat to eat. They may have been eating possibly vegetables or who knows what. Dandelion sandwiches for all we know. But that phrase means that they were sitting at, sitting down for a meal in our language. The Bible used to use the word terrible where it spoke about uh, the, the terrible nature of God. God's terrible... Um, I forget exactly what word it would have to describe his personality, but it didn't mean that he was a terrible person and that you couldn't count on him, that he never treated people right, that he beat his wife or yelled at his kids. That's not what terrible, like what we would use today. That word terrible meant awesome, in awe. People were in awe of the possible nature of God. His, that word terrible had a, didn't have a negative meaning. It was a positive connotation, positively in awe. Where today, unless it changes in, a, in the next couple weeks, which it's likely to do, terrible definitely has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Uh, you can look at the word gay. There are songs that sing, use that word uh, 50 years ago. There's definitely a different meaning when we hear that three-letter word. When we think of the word friend, Any time before the last 20 years, friend was almost always a noun. Today, it's almost always a verb. I friend that person on Facebook. It has a completely new meaning. And those are only a span of 50 years. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. Some of it, the Old Testament, 3,500 years ago. Now, when you put that in perspective, then your mind has to think, well, are there some words in here that simply mean something different than what our culture that is so wishy-washy? Maybe we've changed it, and maybe not a lot. Maybe we've just changed it a little. Maybe we didn't go from terrible to negative, terrible in the positive, something completely negative-positive. Maybe it just has a little bit of a turning in the meaning, and it can change things a lot, especially a word like love that is all over the Bible especially the New Testament. But if you would ask uh, Christians today, that word love, they would definitely associate with the God that they serve and with the Bible. But do we have the biblical definition of that word? Because that word, hopefully as we'll see tonight, there, there is a way that God himself is trying to get that word across with a visual picture. A lot of definitions, meanings, words they don't mean much unless you see a picture in your mind. If you just see the, w- the letters L-O-V-E, doesn't mean that much to you. Dumb example, but I love the ocean so much. Uh, I love Washington, D.C., having been there a few times. Last year, not necessarily the people that <laughs> run that place, but the city is awesome. Last fall, we drove... Seven kids and one wife, nine of us, we drove 24 hours straight through, no stops, except for bathrooms and McDonald's shakes. That's how much I love getting there. It was basically easy to do. I was motivated, keep going. Not to mention that I'm very cheap, didn't want to spend hotel money. But I wanted to get there. See, now you have a picture when you think of John likes the beach or he likes Washington, D.C., you got a picture of some maniac leaning over the wheel, everybody's yelling to stop, and he says, No, no. You have a mental image, a mental picture. The Bible's the same way. God has a picture of L-O-V-E. It's consistent from page one throughout the end of the book. Let's go to John chapter 3.16 because probably without even saying that you've been thinking, I'll bet we're going to go to John 3.16 because it does have the phrase, God loved. He does love. We're going to get to that phrase, God is love. But before we do that, John chapter 3, verse 16, we all know this very well. And quite honestly, the the verses that you know the best, that you have memorized the easiest, sometimes we have to be the most careful in those verses that we get them wrong, or at least that we're missing something that God has added in there because we think, well, why do I even have to think about it? Don't you have to slow down when I read it? I already know what's in there. Let's get to two or three verses down that I've always skipped over. Verse 16, For God so loved the world. Now the word for is indicating that what's coming next is an image of His love. For God so loved the world that like for John, for John so loved the beach that he was willing to drive straight through. The that, what comes after the that, is a picture of how much I want to get there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And those phrases, that he gave his only begotten son, that is a an image, how much God loved loved the world. Now, we kind of pass over that because we all look in the mirror and we think, hey, I mean, I'm easy to love. I I don't do that many things wrong. So what's the big deal? How hard was it for God to love me and maybe my cousin that I like and my sister? We're relatively decent people, not that big a deal. But biblically speaking, mankind is not how we see ourselves. In mankind, once sin came into the world, and we were literally born and shaped in iniquity. Biblically speaking, in the eyes of God, that's a mess. There is our, our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing re- that's there's nothing that's good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In this verse, there is an image or a definition. And I like definitions. A definition so we can be accurate. Definition of love. It's a picture of a doting father giving the most precious thing that he has, which is not his bank account, it's not his favorite car, it's not his fishing boat. The most precious thing that he has is his son. And I said at the beginning, it's consistent from beginning to end. Think back toward the beginning of your Bible. What image is there of love in that picture? A father giving his son. Genesis 22, let's go there. Keep a finger, we might come back there. Genesis chapter 22. And in Bible study, we have focused just on this one chapter. We spent a couple hours on this thing because it's it's so good. Genesis chapter 22, you really get into the story of Abraham, the friend of God, the Bible says. Genesis chapter 22, starting at verse 1, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. That's the first mention of the word love in the Bible. And if you pay attention to that, every time the first, the Bible uses a certain word, a certain phrase, a certain picture the first time, it magnifies it. God takes his time, he slows down, and he really goes deep into definition. This is it. The word love. And he tells Abraham, you have a son, thine only son, whom you love us. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. You know that was not Abraham's only son? No, he had already had Ishmael through his wife's handmaid because they didn't think Sarah could have kids, so they thought they'd help God out. And it ended up being a problem, but he did love Ishmael. He loved him. The Bible tells us that. So why would it seem that God is, well, he's not lying, but why is he saying your only son? Because the story of the Bible is to focus everybody's attention on a certain lineage of people. And it started with the first two people, Abraham, uh, Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, after they sin and God comes walking in the garden, they hide because they're scared, they know they've screwed up. He calls to them, they come there, and he talks with Adam, Eve, and the serpent, the devil, all three, they're there. And in Genesis three, fifteen and sixteen, God tell he's talking to the devil, he's talking to the serpent, and he says, Someday, sir, the seed from this woman is going to crush your head. And from that moment on, the story of the Bible is Satan trying to protect his skull. And he is going to kill everything that comes from that woman, at least the seed that, he, that God was talking about. What's the next page in your Bible? Cain rises up and kills Abel. Satan trying to kill off that promised seed, because God made a promise. Someday something is coming from the woman, and he's going to crush your head. When you get down Abraham's time, God pronounces it. Everybody could hear it. Abraham, the seed, the promise, the covenant is with you. And it's your seed. God identifies Isaac. And in this, even though he has promised that Isaac has to be the one who has to have the kids, who they'll have the kids, who they'll have the kids, that someday the Messiah or the Christ, the promised one, will come through. With all that promise, he says, get him, take him up to a mountain, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I'll tell you about. It's an amazing story. Amazing. The faithfulness of Abraham, he actually does it. He's willing to. They go up, the Bible tells us where it is, Mount Moriah. You know what would happen 2,000 years after this story of Abraham. 2,000 years later on the exact same mountain where Jesus' cross was put into the ground where God, the doting Father, was willing and he went all the way. He sacrificed his son for the world. And from the beginning of your Bible, it's this picture. This is what love looks like. A father who has everything invested in his son, and he's willing to sacrifice him. It's really hard for a civilized mind, in my opinion, to contemplate, to really understand, willing to do that, I'm glad nobody ever asked me to do that. I know what my answer would be. I don't love you enough. I simply don't. I Probably I love him more. And if it was the same thing with any one of my daughters, the answer would be absolutely the same. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him could have eternal life. That's the picture from beginning to end. The reason I'm hitting this dead for over and over again is we're going to see, as you now go to your New Testament, that when God talks about him loving toward the earth, mankind always includes this picture. Let's go to First John. So we're on our way back, let's stop at Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Let's. Verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Talking obviously about Jesus dying. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Just what we talked about. It's very difficult for a normal person to die for someone else. Verse 8. But God commended His love toward us. Talking about God and His love toward people. And what does it say after the comma? In that... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is God's love. That's his picture of love. Now, the reason I'm harping on this is with a lot of reasons. Our culture today misdefines God's love a lot. Very often. You've surely heard someone say, Well, God is love. And we're going to get to that verse. The Bible says that several times. God is love. And then they draw the conclusion, love would never send someone to hell. That's their rationale. That's their definition of love, what love would do, what love may not do. People say that kind of stuff all the time nowadays because they've heard so many sermons that God is love, and he is. That they have come to the conclusion there's no judgment, there's no confrontation of sin, nothing that they would consider negative could ever come from God, because God's love. And This is why definitions are so important. And it's why having an accurate picture of the God that we serve is very important. What are all these verses so far that we've read? Every time it gives us a picture of God's love, it's always talking about His Son that He sent into the world to die for us. He doesn't talk about his love keeping him from doing something. Like, I mean, he would surely never get mad at Aunt Mimi for such and such. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Accurate picture of God's love. It's an action of what he sent to us. He sent us the way, the lifeline, the remedy for sin. And Once you start talking about that word S-I-N, then you start realizing, well, that's the condition everybody's in. You see, before God ever sent anything, if he wouldn't have sent Jesus 2,000 years ago, human beings would still be, be born into this earth every two and a half seconds. The same way in sin. The only difference now is everybody that comes into the earth that is born of a woman, they have an option. They have an option. God sent them a lifeboat. And that decision that every human being has to look at God's plan. And this is why, if I'm ever given the opportunity an hour to talk to somebody, I love framing it in God's plan. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. But when you study God's plan from that Adam and Eve moment when he tells the serpent that someday something's coming from Eve and it's going to crush your head. That plan that started right there and it goes all the way through Jesus' time, through your time, all the way out the book of the Revelation. That plan is perfect. And the Bible puts it as when people look at that plan and if they then believe, If you simply believe in God's plan, something changes. It's not whether or not you believe in one teaching of Jesus or another teaching. And once we decide to follow him, and we realize he's really the God of the universe, well then, in awe, we want to do everything he tells us. That's not how we approach him to start. We don't think he had a good teaching, that's why I'm going to follow Jesus. No, we first decide This guy is the Son of God. And the awe that that puts in us, I don't ever want to be on the wrong side of him. I want to follow everything that he says. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they're way back toward the end of your Bible, right before you get to Jude and Revelation. 1 John chapter 3. This is written by the same John who wrote the Gospel of John with the Holy Spirit's help. But 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, they're small little books. One of them is just a page long or so. 1st John, 2nd, 3rd John, then Jude, then Revelation. So go way to the back. 1st John, chapter 3, verse 16. 1st John, chapter 3, verse 16. Hereby perceive, what does the word perceive mean? It means... You understand you can look at something and you can understand what it is, what's going on. If I perceive my child sneaking towards something I've told them to stay away from, I'm understanding. The reason they're sneaking, they don't want to be heard. They don't want to draw attention to themselves. That's perception. Hereby we perceive the love of God. How do we understand the love of God? Because He laid down His life for us. Now, once you understand that, Once the definition of, I know what love is, it's God. He sent his son here to die for us. Then the comma, the last part of verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know what makes a person, what should make us want to love our brethren, sisters, brothers in Christ? When we think of what was done for us. The Bible says, Whoever is forgiven much loveth much. See, we the whole basis, the whole foundation of that thinking is I know the penalty that was supposed to come to me. I deserved it. No matter if I gave everybody in my third grade class a Valentine, that doesn't make me a good kid. I still have the sin in my life that has to have a remedy. And what Jesus did, the plan of God of putting my sin on Jesus and then crucifying it, just torturing it on the cross and the blood shed all over it and cleansed it. You understand that plan of God, then it gets in your head, well, if that was done for me, now this should push me to want to do it for other people. And it's a hard part, isn't it? it? It's just, it can be really, some people make it hard. Maybe that's not a loving thing to say. Some people are hard to love, and you know what you gotta do? You hold your nose and you do it anyway. Yeah, you're not even commanded to like everybody. You really don't. Because the Bible says to love them and those are two different things. They really are. Liking, there's something inside of you that you want to be around them, you you want to go do stuff with them if you love them, you'll do that stuff even if they drive you berserk. Love. And that love comes from an understanding of what was done for me with Jesus on the cross. Remember, there's a lot of verses in the Bible about love. But if you go and you want to check all this out to see if John really is telling the truth, then you should do that. Whenever it talks about God's love toward the earth, it always puts it in the phrase or the the, the picture of giving his son to them. Giving his son, giving his son. Let's go to chapter four here and start looking at verse seven. Chapter four and verse seven. You got any subtitles in your Bible? Because mine has in quotes three words. God is love. This has the phrase that we that American Christians love. God is love and he is. But let's get a biblical definition for how it's presented. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, so he's talking to who? Christians, that's right, saints. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. That verse is very good at painting the picture that if you are gods, and if he's in you, you should be loving people. Verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for, and here it is, God is love. I I grew up with mathematics. And the word is, in the English language with math, is an equal sign. 3 times 3 is 9. That's an equal sign. 5 times 5 is 25. 5 times 5 equals 25. The word is is an equal sign, and that means whatever on either side, you can interchange them. Wherever you see 5 times 5, you can go to the word bank, grab 25 out of it, and substitute it. They're the same, they're identical. Here it says, God is love. That's big, that's huge. That means He is love. Now remember, that's not your definition of love, and it's not mine. I didn't write the book, and you didn't write the book. And the only reason I say that is just be careful. Maybe you do have a great definition of love, and clap for you. Hopefully it is biblical. Just be careful. We need a biblical definition. Look what comes next, verse 9. It just said, for God is love, and it says, in this, or in the idea that God is love, was manifested... That's a Bible word. What does the word manifest mean? Displayed, it's in a way that you can see it. Sometimes it talks about a manifestation of the Spirit, because spiritual things are like Jesus was talking about, the wind blowing through the trees. You can't really see it. You can see its effects. Something is manifested. Its its nature is you can't really see it. But when it's manifested, well, you can point to it, almost touch it, and you can tell somebody about it because you can see it. That's what manifested is. The love of God. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Here again, God's love toward us, comma, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world. He's consistent throughout his whole book. What is God's love? And sending his son to die for mankind. That substitution death. So that the penalty that was absolutely due me. In a court of law, I had no other defense. There was nothing I could offer the judge to proclaim my innocence. Nothing. Every argument I would make would get thrown out of court. I might even get a gag order. But there is one thing. That sin had to be paid for. And that's the problem. A a person, man, you can't even pay for your own sin. Isn't that crazy? You're born with it because of what Adam and Eve did. And yet, to get rid of it, there's nothing you physically can do. But there is something you can do spiritually where God does physically remove it. The blood of Jesus. It's why the Old Testament is a bloody book. It's a picture. Over and over, they would sacrifice animals. And what they do with those, those sacrifices? What they do with the blood? They literally covered things with it. They would sprinkle things with that blood as a picture. A picture of when the blood gets on it, God always then viewed it as cleansed. We think, Sister, you get blood on that dress and I'll kill you. That's your grandmother's dress. We think it stains. Biblically speaking, blood, what it does spiritually, it cleanses. It completely redeems. If you give blood for something, if you, uh, there are certain instances where blood will pay for something. We even have that. He's a blood donor. In this world, if you, If they want to get your health, the first thing they do is they'll draw out a little bit of blood, they send it off to the lab, and they can do all kinds of tests. The Bible tells us that the life of the flesh, it's in your blood. The blood has, it tells you almost anything. There's also that idea of you need revenge. You want to make somebody pay for them, they pay for it in blood. It's a manner of speaking, it's a mob way of talking that... Blood pays for it because you're paying with life. And there's a picture throughout the whole Bible where blood covers sin. When Adam and Eve did sin, the Bible says that they didn't cover themselves. They were naked, they were ashamed. And in that Genesis 3.15 account where he's talking to them, the Bible tells you at the end of that chapter that he took animal skins and he covered them. That's when people first started killing animals to make leather. They first started using animal skins as coats. Those animals don't voluntarily hand over their skin. They die. Their blood has to be shed. They were covered with bloody coats in a manner, a picturesque look at how God dealt with their sin. He didn't snap his finger and say it's gone. Poof. He didn't. He gave us a picture. The Animal skins, that blood had to cover them. And from that moment until Jesus got here, how did God deal with sin? Same way. Animals had to die. When Solomon dedicated the temple and all those sinful men had built the temple, how did God cleanse it? He told Solomon, they killed tens of thousands of goats, sheeps, bullocks. Blood was running literally down the streets. That was their... The only way they knew that God had told them, cleanse this thing, the temple. That's where God was going to dwell, blood. 1 John 4, verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Picture of love verse 10 Herein is love not that we love God but that he loved us comma and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that word propitiation is just an old english word that it's the best way i know how it's a substitute something needed to happen and this was pulled out of the way and a propitiation a substitute was put in there and that was jesus on the cross His cross, His death, was so brutal. The Bible teaches us that God was punishing our sin there. He was paying for it. That's why it couldn't be rubbed soap on Him and just cleanse Him and then our sin was gone. No. The Bible laid out in Leviticus 17.11 there's one way that God takes care of sin. Shedding of blood. You didn't think of it. I didn't think No, but that wasn't man's idea. It was God's idea. Blood is has to be shed to make redemption for sin. It's kind of strange, but it's God's way. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought also to love one another. There it is. That's another example of why, what motivates us to love somebody else. Really, it's supposed to be what God did for us. That's supposed to be the the impetus that pushes us. Man, I I know what God did for me. Verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. Last two verses are talking about God loving us and us loving him we realize what he did for us some Pauline or some New Testament language that may seem like it's a little hard to understand it's really just talking about God loving us and then we love him and then look at verse 14 after that happens and we have seen we've seen it and we do testify that means we talk about it that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Notice how every time God talks about love, what's the picture? A Father sending his Son into the world over and over. That's his image, that's how he wrote the book. Mankind. Now, this. At this point, we should maybe stop for a second. That's his whole definition. The whole picture is God sending his son into this world. Well, maybe if you just take a couple steps back, now you start to see why the Bible tells the story that it does. The entire story of the Bible is about God in the Old Testament protecting Israel. Doesn't mean they ever did anything right. That's not what it means. He had just made a promise that the promised... Seed would come through them. So he protected them. He destroyed their enemies in front of them sometimes because he had made a promise. It's gonna come through them. And that's why the New Testament starts out with Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Pharaohs and Judah, and then Pharaohs, and it goes all the way down because it's proving that what he said, he had to come through that lineage. The Bible's written in this way, the story of God sending His Son into the earth. Now, think about that. How many people read the Bible that way? That God made a promise. He's keeping His promise through these thousands of pages in the Old Testament. And He gets here and He's born just the way the Old Testament said He would be. Born of a virgin. He has to be in a small little place, Bethlehem. He would be born when Daniel 9.25 said He would. All these things came true. And yet, people read the Bible as, well, I wonder what God wants me, um, how, he sh- how I should treat my kids. It's in there. And I don't want to diminish that at all, other than put it in its right protocol. The Bible was written so that the reader comes to one conclusion, that God made a promise he'd send his Son into the earth, and you know who that is? Without a doubt, it can't be anybody else. Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that Bible study we did some weeks ago about the word Christ? The promised one. That word Christ, the one word, C H R I S T, that tells the entire story of the Bible. It tells the whole story. God made a promise. God kept talking about it, telling people how to identify him when he got here. And then when he gets here, it starts saying how Peter and Andrew and James and John and all these guys, they identified, hey, that's the Messiah, that's the Christ. That's the story. And through that story, what would God do? He'd make it possible for me and for you to get to him. It's the only way you can get there. Verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. The whole idea isn't that Jesus showed us how to lay your life down for your friend. He does do that. That's not why he came. When he left, got his passport to go from heaven to earth, his number one priority wasn't to teach us how to treat our neighbor. Yes, he teaches us that. But he, first of all, wants to prove to mankind that he is God's son. The whole reason he was even put to death at his trial, they said, are you the son of God? I mean, they got really angry. But finally, finally, they ask him, are you the son of God? First time in his trial, he speaks up and he says, you've said it. That's when they rip their clothes and they say, "What? we don't have need of any more further witnesses. He's blasphemed. let's kill him. It was all about whether or not he was the son of God. Go down to verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Now look at the wording of this carefully. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is what? Now get a picture in your head of what those words mean. It's asking, do you believe that Jesus was the promised person out of the Old Testament? That's our English, modern English way of saying that. Do you believe? That Jesus was the Christ, the person that God had promised to Adam, Eve, and Satan in the garden. Because if you do, then you get the rest of this verse. Being a Christian is identifying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. That is what becoming a follower of God, a believer in Christ, that's what those words mean, biblically speaking. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is you're born of God. That's that new birth. And everyone that loveth him that begat, who's that? Who's the one that begat? The Father. Think, please, think with these words, through these words with me. Everyone that loveth him that begat, that's the Father. The Father in John 3.16, the only begotten, The God, the Father, is the one that did the begatting. Everyone that loveth him that begat, that's the Father, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Who's the begotten of him? Jesus. It's just putting it in Father and Son terminology. Now, don't pass over this. Everyone that loveth the Father loveth him also, Jesus. You pay attention to the book of 1 John, it is making an equivalence. You cannot separate Jesus and the Father. It cannot happen. If you that the, the Gospel of John is filled with this stuff. And maybe we, we should spend some time and go over there. But anywho, you cannot look at Jesus and think, well, I don't really like that God of the Old Testament, but I sure love this guy in front of me. Biblically speaking, that doesn't even make sense. By Jesus' and the disciples' own words, it doesn't make sense because they are the same. And let's look at it from another perspective. What if you're, say, a Muslim person, and you think to yourself, well, maybe we are worshiping the same God, so I love God, but I sure hate that Jesus. That doesn't make sense either. You can't separate them. You can't adore one and dislike the other. You can't even be attracted to one and unattracted to the other. They are the same. Father and Son. They're just manifested to us, to our eyeballs, human, because we're limited they look a little, we've seen Jesus, although Jesus even told us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, keep your finger right there. If you go, Let's go to the book of Jude, which is maybe one, two, three pages over in your Bible toward the end. The book of Jude. The book of Jude. And since we only had to turn a couple pages, why not go here? Because I think this is a pretty decent example. Now the book of Jude, uh, if you, shall we say, if, you're, if you haven't been around the Bible a lot, the book of Jude is strange. There are things in the book of Jude that are only mentioned in the book of Jude. Or at least it sure seems that way. I'm gonna, we're, we're not going to get sidetracked on anything. I just want to look at how Jude talks about God the Father and Jesus. Jude, chapter, uh, it's only one chapter, so look at verse 4. It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. We're We're not even looking at that yet. They were ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And look at this. They were denying the only Lord God, that's the Father, and who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing I want to point out is when he talked about God, the Father, God the Son. There's one word that he used for both. Lord God, comma and our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jude is talking, can you get a, a flavor, can you get the sense, to him they're the same, aren't they? Especially if he uses what word? Lord. Look at the next verse. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, How, that, who. Now he's only just using the singular one. He's not mentioning both, but I think you get the understanding. He's talking about both, isn't he? And this is what both God the Father and Jesus did. They, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Wait a minute, time out. What book of the Bible does that occur in? Where the Israelites were saved out of Egypt? That's the second book in the Bible, Exodus and it's early in exodus wait a minute wait, wait wait that that that's old testament stuff right that's way... there are are there, 20 there's 37 books in the old testament so you got 35 books from exodus till you get to jesus and he's saying that who took those people out of egypt and then it says afterward he destroyed them that believed not that story when the uh, the israelites got out into the promised Toward the promised land out in the wilderness, they turned their backs on God, and God destroyed them. It took 40 years. And He marched around in circles until they died off. Who did that? Who is the Lord? The Father and the Son. See, even according to Jude, this guy helping to write the New Testament, how did he understand the Trinity? Did he think that, well, Jesus just showed up, I shook his hand, I was there, I put my hand in his side when he was resurrected, and that's the first time he's ever been. He didn't think that at all. He didn't think that in his lifetime was when Jesus started. In his lifetime was when Jesus was born of a woman and put on flesh. The first time he had arteries and tendons and ligaments and bones and kidneys. But he existed way back there. In the beginning John the gospel of John tells us in the beginning, everything was even made through him. so he was back there. This tells you of what the New Testament guys thought about Jesus and his connection to God. they were one and the same. Now you think well is that a big it's a big deal? because if you separate them and you try to well I'll be a follower of Jesus but I don't really like that God of the Old Testament. there's a problem. I'm sorry, that is a major problem, biblically speaking. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and that first verse is worth reading again. Verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, that whole story of God sending His Son into this earth, he existed long before he ever got here he existed from the beginning the first time he would put on flesh 2000 years ago the supposed son of joseph born of the virgin mary and if you believe that story then you're born of god and everyone that loveth the father you also love the son i just john just keeps this language, he keeps digesting it to bring it all into the same idea. The Father and the Son. Verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now the next three or four or five verses, the language can be confusing to me. You need about 40 minutes to pull this apart, get definitions, and then put it back together. So we're not going to do that tonight. Skip down to verse 9. If. That's a condition. doesn't mean it happens. If we receive the witness of men. What that means is, is if... Mr. Beavers tells me something. I may make up my mind that I'll accept it. He's been relatively truthful with me <laughs> to this point that I've gotten to him, so I'll, I'll go ahead and take his word for it. I, that means I receive his witness. I accepted what he told me. This verse says, If you receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I, I mean, I'm a nuts and bolts guy. What does that mean, the witness of God? See, Mr. Beavers has told me something. He may have predicted the score of a football game. He told me what the weather was going to be, or it's a good time to plant potatoes or not. And I can believe him or not. This idea that the witness of God, when has he ever told me something? That's what it's talking about. Do I accept the witness of God because it's greater? It says, For this is the witness of God which... He hath testified of his Son. Wait. Uh, Does anybody have a picture in your head when that would have happened? What is he talking about? That God the Father testified. Now that word testify, that's what you do in court. You put your hand in God's Bible, you say, I'll tell the truth. I'll tell the truth. And you give voice to what's going on in your head and your heart. Keep a finger there. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And in verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus has gone out to the Jordan River where John is baptizing the, John the Baptist. And Jesus convinces him to baptize him. And when you get to verse 16, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven. Now They did not have B-52 bombers back then. There weren't things that flew overhead that you wondered, what well, what was that? They didn't have loudspeakers from downtown. If you heard something come out of the sky. They knew what it was. A voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That voice came from heaven, and everybody there understood God the Father was doing what? He was identifying that this is my son. My son, in whom I'm well pleased. That was God testifying. Go to Matthew chapter 16, I think. Is that right? Matthew 17, excuse me. Matthew chapter 17. At the beginning of this chapter is a story when Jesus goes up on a mountain with a few of the disciples and he is transfigured before them. They saw a picture of what he would look like with his resurrected body. He was shining. He was shining white that as bright as the sun in one place. And Moses and Elijah appear, the, the angels talking to him. And look what it says in verse 5. Peter was talking, and while Peter yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. In other words, listen up. Whatever the heck he tells you, you do it. He is God in the flesh talking. There's two incidents where God... Testified of his son. See, before, most everything else is Jesus testifying that, well, he sent me here. And I'm telling you, Jesus would say, I'm telling you what he told me to say. See, it happened so that you could confirm it in reverse, where the voice came down from heaven and it confirmed that this is God's son. So now go back to 1 John chapter 5, in verse 9. 1 John 5, 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He's already told us, that's my Son. Verse 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made Him or hath made God a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Now, at this point, we're circling all the way back to where we started. At the beginning of this, I started this with the idea of what is the definition of love. Because today, so many people think, because of the phrase God is love, they think, well, my definition of love: out of love, I would never throw my kid off of a, off of a swing. I just I would never do anything negative. There's no negative consequences to love, and people apply that false definition, to God. And God's definition of love is that He He did everything that He could. He sent His Son into the earth to make remedy for us. But what happens if you look at that remedy and a you don't believe it? You just plain reject it. See, there's trouble. And it's not God in hate, or wrath, or anger, just saying, I'm mad at you. People, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. You came into this, and I, every human came into this earth with a huge problem. We're born in sin. And God didn't have to get mad Or start loving. He's just the same. Out of His love, He sent toward the earth a way that they could get out of it. And if they don't, if they reject it, they're in the position they've always been in. John three At the end of John chapter 3, it says that the wrath of God abideth on Him. If you don't believe God, if you don't believe that He sent His Son, if you don't believe that whole plan of God, then the wrath of God abides on that person. And it's not that God just, now he's mad at you. No. You came into this world with that problem. And if we believe on his promise, his plan, then born again on the inside. God didn't change then. He was the same yesterday and today, whether I accepted him or not. He's always the same. The love of God isn't that he'll send me to hell. We've we got to stop thinking like that. The love of God is everybody's on their way to hell. Period. Since Adam. And there's only one way that that can be resolved, redeemed, changed, so that a good ending can come out. And that is, he sent his son. Out of his love, he sent his son into the earth. That Whosoever believes, that means you got a choice. Whosoever decides, I see God's plan, that is, that's amazing. And you accept Jesus as your Savior. That's right. Verse 11, and this is the record, that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is where? It's in his son. It's not whether or not God woke up with a bad attitude. It's not whether maybe the angels really got him upset because somebody didn't give him his coffee before it got cold. God doesn't change up there, and He's not in a good mood or a bad mood. He's always been the same. Verse twelve: He that hath the Son, and what's that mean? Hath the Son? You got Him in your pocket? Doesn't mean you've put Him in a briefcase and you're carrying it around through the airport. No, that's not what it means by hath Him. That means you've accepted Him and you put Him right there. He's in your heart. And he that hath, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Shouldn't try to expand on that. That, that's, That's pretty good on its own, isn't it? Let's finish with one verse. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to bring together... This whole idea of where Jesus came from. This, if you really think about what's going on in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18 and 19, it helps with this idea of the Father and the Son being one. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. Now remember, throughout the whole Old Testament, there was all kinds of, there was many events where God, in the Bible, gave mankind some pictures of what the Messiah would look like when he got here. And this is one of them. He is talking about that promised person. Verse 18 in chapter 18. I will raise them up. He's talking about Israel and the I is God. I will raise them up a capital P prophet from among their brethren. He's going to be Jewish, isn't he? Like unto thee, because he's talking to Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. This is why Jesus told the Jews, the Pharisees, Everything I say I have heard from the Father. I only speak those words that I have heard the Father. Jesus was trying to tell them, You guys think you're following God, that you're worshipers of God, and yet you're trying to kill me, he told them. He said, I am giving you everything that the Father has told me. He was fulfilling Deuteronomy, Eighteen, eighteen. Next verse. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now this is God talking to Moses and he's giving him a, a prophecy that's going to come to pass in about 1,500 years. He says that it's going to come to pass that whoever doesn't listen to that guy's voice I will require it of him. Now, when you get to Luke chapter 10, it says this that Jesus said, I don't I judge no man. He said, If you don't accept me, you will be judged by my words. If you accept Jesus' words, because you link him to the Father, and I mean that's God talking. That's what first John was saying that if you love the Son, you love the Father, and vice versa. If you love the Father, you love Him. It's His words that will judge you someday if you don't accept Him. And what are those words? Those words of that entire Bible story. He'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born of a virgin. Those words in Psalm chapter 22 that paint the picture of nails being pierced into His flesh. All those words throughout the Bible that paint the picture of the story of God sending his son here. And that's how we're supposed to identify him very easily. There's nobody in here that was born in Bethlehem, right? You don't even have a chance of being that person. And You know how many people have been born in Bethlehem? Not many. It's like Gilead. Tiny. It is. It's small. God restricted it so you wouldn't have to sift through the billions of people. Only the ones that are born there. Born of a virgin. Born when Daniel 9.25 said you had to be born. All those things. If you fill all those check marks, that's the Messiah. And it's supposed to be so easy to see that anybody can look at it and realize that's God's plan, I accept it. And then you're a new creature in Christ. The love of God was He sent His Son into this earth. And the story of His Son coming into this earth is the story of the Christ coming here. Father, we pray, Lord, that each one of us would be encouraged and strengthened. Father, I pray over every person that they'd have a wonderful week, that You'd go before them to straighten their path. We pray, Lord, that they'd live under an open heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.